Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Hello, and thank you for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Rebecca King. This week, I had the chance to talk to Javier Moscoso, who is a professor of history and philosophy of science at the Institute of History at the Spanish National Research Council in Madrid. He's also the author of Pain, A Cultural History, which we'll be talking about today. Now, if you're like me, you probably associate pain with doctors and medicine rather than culture or history. But that's where the fascinating field of the medical humanities comes in. Halfway between history and philosophy, Moscoso's book considers the historical forms that have permitted the understanding of human suffering, from the Renaissance to the present. So how does one get interested in studying pain? I've been always very much interested in why and how people convince others of their own experiential states, of their own states of mind, of their own feelings, emotions. Uh, it is not a question of demonstration. I mean, when we talk about experiences, we, are not, we, we do not demonstrate, and we don't have the means to demonstrate nothing. If I'm in love, uh, I cannot demonstrate my love. I can simply produce some sort of evidences, or expressive evidence of evidences in my gestures, in my attitudes, in my behavior. But it is a question of convention. At the, at the very end, you will have to convince someone that your, your sentiments, your feelings, your, your, your emotional experiences are worth being trusted. The same applies to pain. I mean, pain, uh, it is usually regarded as a kind of experience that uh, we all know what it is by personal experience, and then we may always call into question the pain of others. So I, I was very much intrigued about how this kind of relationship have, had changed over time. What are the means, the, the historical means employed to produce conviction in some other people that you are really in pain, or even to get convinced that some others are in pain? So there is a kind of rhetoric in the study of pain. Ultimately then, says Moscoso, pain is really a kind of performance. And I know this idea might sound strange at first. Obviously, if you're home alone and you stub your toe on the coffee table, even without an audience there to see it, you would still feel pain. However, Javier Moscoso maintains that how we perceive and even experience pain is shaped by our culture. Well, there is a component, which is an essential component of the, of the understanding and, and, and experience of pain, which is a social, cultural, uh, given component. And that has to do with the idea of performativity. So we, we perform roles, we play roles, which doesn't mean that people lie. You, you know, you learn how to behave, you learn how to play the role that you want to play. Uh, what I'm trying to say is that even, even now, I'm playing a role. I'm playing the role of being interviewed. You're, you're playing the role of, of, of making this interview. The, the listeners are, are just, you know, I mean, we, we all know how to behave. We learn that. It goes with our education, it goes with the way in which we, we feel, we understand our position. We also teach our children 
uh, which is the, the proportion that they should be given to their cries and complaints whenever they have a, a particular problem. We tell them, well, you cannot really complain that much because that, uh, that has just happened to you. Because otherwise, I mean, when things get worse, you, you will be lacking words or expressions. So in a certain way, we are taught by our cultural forms how to behave, how to not simply to express our feelings and emotions, but also how to experience them in a sense. Of course, these cultural norms have changed over time. And so too, says Moscoso, has the human understanding, experience, and performance of pain. From his research, he has identified several trends in how pain has been communicated and experienced through the ages, based on cultural shifts of the time. These ways of persuasion, they are not incompatible with one another. What I try to do in this book is not given the whole set. I mean, I'm, I'm talking about some that I found very often in, in historical records and the historical material that I've been dealing with, and then also trying to, to see why some of these ways of persuasion were specifically linked to different periods. So it was very reasonable to talk about representation as a way of understanding and conceptualizing pain in, in the Renaissance. It was very, well, reasonable in my view to talk about imitation in the 17th century because it is the century of the imitation. And it, the same happens with sympathy, uh, which is a very much an enlightenment and an 18th century idea, or with measurement in the 19th century and so on. And these uh, ways of persuasion are very easy to understand. If your pain can be represented, if it can be imitated, it, it produces sympathy. If it can be measured, if your words can be trusted and so on, then chances are that you will be fine in the sense that no one is going to call into question what is going on and which are your complaints. There are types of pain that could not, at least until recently, be understood. Those who suffered invisible pains, like post-traumatic stress disorder or fibromyalgia, pushed the boundaries of the social and cultural trust. Of course, things get a little bit more difficult when your pain cannot be represented or imitated or measured, or you are simply called into question for different reasons, which is what happened with the chronic pain patients from the mid-20th century onwards. That, uh, well, in that case, there is only one way out, which is we'll try to get as many people on board as possible, try to compare the way we share the same narrative of symptoms. We may not have anything else but that. I mean, simply the idea that we belong to a community of sufferers who share a similar way of describing our invisible symptoms. And, and without that understanding, which I think it is a very important understanding, the idea that I feel better when I feel part of a community, and I feel better when, I, when I've been, say, in a certain way, conceptualized, and I feel also stronger because it is not me isolated against uh, the others. It is a community of others trying to say, hey, uh, we, we got a problem here. And that is what's happened with, uh, with chronic pain sufferers. And this is also what has happened with some other communities uh, of uh, invisible pain. It could be physiological pain, it could be psychological pain, it could be political pain, but it is an extraordinary way of producing and creating uh, communities of uh, now visible sufferers. But it has also given us the possibility, as I mentioned before, of exploring to which extent 
the narration, the narrative of our symptoms may change, first of all, with history, and therefore, to which extent history may shed some light in the way in which patients of different kinds may find some well-being. Diagnosis, then, is a powerful tool that provides a kind of cultural and social affirmation and even legitimization for these groups who suffer invisible pain. However, this power that diagnosis has is not always for the good. There is a power of diagnosis for the good and for the bad reasons. I mean, sometimes you medicalize behaviors uh, which uh, perhaps shouldn't be medicalized, or you uh, even stigmatize people uh, that shouldn't be stigmatized by, by means of labels, but the other way around too. Sometimes people want to be put into labels and saying, well, I'm not making this up. I'm simply a case, another case of something that has been studied. So you, there are reasons for trusting me. There are reasons for believing that I'm not a, you know, a liar. If I may go to the question of the fibromyalgia of some of the chronic patients that we are studying now, Sometimes the, the difficulty with these people is that they are not given a role to play socially. And that's also the reason why whenever they finally they get a diagnosis, they feel relief. So in, in a sense, they are told, uh, now finally you have the possibility of playing the role of a fibromyalgia patient. So you don't really have to be worried about who you are, about the well, making or producing conviction about the, you know, your own pains. You, you simply may rest. While many take a diagnosed disease more seriously than an undiagnosed ailment, others may simply never really be convinced of another's pain. In ideal cases, there is always a sort of correspondence between lesions and experiences and painful experiences, but that doesn't happen all the time. And it doesn't happen even if there are, even if we have this correspondence, then there is not always, say, the same proportion. So you may claim that perhaps uh, women uh, at birth are complaining too much, or you may claim that uh, women with uh, PMS are complaining too much, or you may claim that perhaps uh, soldiers are complaining too little, or you may claim that, uh, well, these, these people with phantom limbs are just uh, hystericals. I mean, the examples that we may take from history, or even from our days, are enormous. Because pain is ultimately an experience that is legitimized through both learned and active social roles, there is an ethical dimension to this conversation, says Javier Moscoso, and it's a question he feels very keenly in his own research. Sometimes I see in my historical records many people who I believe they were truly suffering from what I think it is unacceptable, but they don't complain. They don't complain. And that creates both a historiographical problem, but also a political issue, because which is my position on that regard. So I say simply, well, if they don't complain, then this is not, uh, this is not my business. This has anything to do with the history of pain, because they don't complain anyway. So let me give you an example. I mean, those um, those girls in Thailandia who had been raped, but they thought it was normal because they, they were never given the possibility of understanding that they were, their body was never there to be abused, would we say, shall we, well, then it's fine, because they think it is normal. So we should not consider that rape. There is always someone who is going to give not simply value, but always meaning to the pain 
of others and to our own pain. That other might be, of course, uh, what the perpetrators of uh, physical violence. Uh, I, I, I trust the, the ones who raped those girls in Thailand knew what they were doing. But also the researchers and scholars or journalists, those who at the very end are dealing with this kind of material. The, there is an ethical dimension and a political dimension in this kind of research that has never been uh, uh, emphasized enough. I'm always very respectful to those people who I study for different reasons, but I always think that I'm at their service and not the other way around, not the other way around. It is very easy sometimes when you're in, in a position in which you are, first of all, you're alive, the others are dead. First of all, you're here, the others are not. It is sometimes very tempting to see that you are most important than, than the people you are researching. But I, I try not to forget that, that I'm simply sort of an instrument. And the, uh, in a sense, it is like being an, a musical interpreter. If you think that you are most important than music, then, well, I don't think you will be such a good interpreter anyway. It is only when you when you get to know, when you get to understand that there is a, a moral value in what you do, and that you are not simply doing research for publishing papers, you are uncovering something that has been forgotten, and then shedding light on that for what you think it is a good reason. If that doesn't change you, then I don't think what is the value of the humanities in the first place. Many thanks to Javier Moscoso, a professor of history and philosophy of science at the Institute of History at the Spanish National Research Council in Madrid. If you're interested in reading more about the ideas that we discussed today, you should check out his book, Pain, A Cultural History. And thanks to all of you too out there for tuning in to Hold That Thought. Have thoughts of your own after today's podcast? Join the conversation on Facebook or Twitter.